Hello, and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Today, I've got a guest on named Jeremiah Reed. He's a game developer. Um, he occasionally writes about uh, game development. Uh, his game, uh, his main big game is called Golden Crone Hotel. And it's a roguelike, uh, kind of like a elemental boiled down roguelike. He came on my radar, uh, I think last year, because he wrote an article about um, how Omnacronom, Escape the Omnacronom, uh, was a good example of like the indie game post-apocalypse, which I thought was interesting. So yeah, we had a really good conversation all about that kind of topic and uh, many other topics as well. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I thought there was a lot of really good insights on how uh, indie game developers can uh, maybe make a, a find some way to make a living for themselves in this atmosphere. Um, and I actually came away from the conversation feeling quite uh, pumped up and excited about um, the prospects for um, uh, for Gem Wizards Tactics, which is a little bit weird given how a lot of what we talk about is quite grim um but uh but i i don't know i just i just have this feeling i i'm an i'm i'm endlessly optimistic um so we'll see how that goes of course but anyway this conversation was really good i i it was one of my favorite conversations i've had on the podcast um i just think that um jeremiah has a really good uh grasp on what's going on in indie games and um so yeah this was a great conversation uh, thank you so much. Uh, if you missed it, I did a big announcement on KeithBergun.net about uh, my new game, Gem Wizards Tactics. I recommend checking that out because it gets into a little bit of the nitty-gritty rules stuff. Um, there was also a Reddit post about it and uh, a lot of good comments there. So definitely come in, check it out. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for listening. And here is my conversation with Jeremiah Reed. Cool. So Jeremiah, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, it's good to have you. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I've been a big fan for several years. So yeah, I wanted to, uh, for some of my listeners who might not know your, you know, that much about your background and stuff, I think a lot of them probably have at least heard of uh, your game, your, your major, I think it's your one major game, right? Golden Crone Hotel. Is that like your biggest thing that people may know you from yeah i'm assuming most people don't know me but if they did it would be for golden crone hotel which is kind of like a traditional roguelike about vampires mm-hmm. uh it's sort of a shorter game i released that in 2016 and I, i've been doing these seven drl challenges a seven day roguelike challenge for uh i've done it seven times now since 2013 and that's nice. really how i got back into game mm-hmm so I wanted to do game development for like most of my life and did a lot of prototypes like in high school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then kind of just fell out of it. It seemed kind of difficult to make a complete game. And, um, you know, I don't do all, any of this on full time. I'm just a hobbyist. So just chip away at something a little bit of time. And in 2013, I got into 7DRL. It was really good for me because I could finish something in one week and call it done. Mm-hmm. And I you don't need much motivation to stick with something for one week. True. And that's, that's how I got into uh, developing games again. And, you know, I, the second year I did, I made golden crone hotel, got a lot of good feedback and uh, decided to take it like into a major game um, around when steam green light was really taking off. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. Yeah. So I want to get into that. We're going to talk about the whole like indie game uh, apocalypse and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I want to get a little more about your background. Like where, where are you coming from? Like what's your, did you go to college for, for something? And what is your, like, what do you do for a living? That kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I think I wanted to do games and then if not games, at least programming pretty much my whole life. And then funny thing is around the time I was going to college, like right after the dot-com bubble uh, mm -hmm. crashed, everybody in my family was convinced like uh, there are no programming jobs. They're all going to get like shipped overseas huh. uh, or a computer or a computer was going to program everything for you, <laughs> which is really ridiculous in hindsight. Sure. I don't believe any of that, but um, I, I went into like engineering a little bit and, but just got back into programming later. And then, yeah, I, I never really wanted to do games um, like in the industry, like triple a, uh, I have a few friends that worked at game companies and it just seems like that, you know, a lot of people get treated really badly. That'll, There's... that'll stop you from wanting to work in the industry is having friends that work in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I had some friends that worked in like QA and stuff. They're, they're probably at the bottom rung, mm -hmm. but still, you know, you hear a lot of bad stories. So just for sure, I, I've always been obsessed with the idea of like the single person indie project or the, even going like, um, several years back, like the, the small games, like in the eighties and or 90s that were made by like single people or like one mm -hmm. or two people and that's when when indie really blew up i get i don't know 2008 2010 or whatever you want to think about that like around braid uh, yeah. when that came out sure I, you really started to think again of these games like uh cave store is another good example of these pretty sizable projects that one person could work on and then you know around the time that green like um came around i got really excited about the idea because it's just like oh now you can get on steam and yeah we'll, we'll get to that more yeah um but i'm I'm a, I'm a software developer uh full-time that's what i that's my job gotcha uh, uh, do you are there other things that you also like did you do the art for golden crone and that kind of stuff uh, as well or yeah i did all the art it's like uh 16 uh pixel uh tile pixel art mm -hmm. not too crazy i think it's pretty achievable for most people mm -hmm. and uh yeah, I, I didn't do the the music. That's the one thing I I don't think I could ever do myself. So I contracted that. Gotcha. So if you had like you know uh, if you were like if you had like a million dollar budget or something, you would still prefer to work uh, as like a one, two, three size person team. Uh, do you think, or do you would you want to actually do a larger project uh, if you had the capacity to do that? Yeah, maybe I would like contract the, some of the art out and more of the music and audio. Mm -hmm. But I, I like the idea of. of a project being driven by like one or two people uh, so it's not designed by committee mm -hmm. i think some of the best projects come out yeah I, I i tend to kind of go back and forth on that i mean i i think what i'm realizing is that like i'm i am definitely a uh person who like works best by myself and uh and maybe wants to work by myself but i'm i'm not necessarily convinced that the best work comes out of that because i feel like sometimes I don't know. There's, there's upsides and downsides to each approach, right? Like, uh, because sometimes, yeah, you can get that design by committee thing where all the interesting corners are shaved off. That's definitely true. At the same time, uh, you know, you just have more brains thinking about this thing and applying themselves to this thing and bringing different kinds of like aesthetic values that, you know, one person just can't conceive of because they're just one person. They're like, they, we all have our own like blinders and, and whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you think about a really large game, um, something with a lot of content, there's like obviously no way one person can make it. 
and they wouldn't make it. Uh, they wouldn't have enough perspectives, like you said. But I, I tend to focus on these smaller projects, uh, yeah. like tightly scoped games. Yeah. So actually, when I made Golden Crone Hotel, it's it is a traditional roguelike, but it's because it was made out of a game jam initially. It it's designed in certain ways to be very streamlined, like that loot is kind of like auto pickup, mm-hmm. and s- some things are simplified. It still has like a lot of uh, cool mechanics to it. But like it's very streamlined and it's also sh- short relative to some of these traditional roguelikes are like could take twenty hours, thirty hours mm. to to beat once, yeah. right? And um, and I, I tend to focus on those kinds of projects just I guess because it's, it's more practical, but also um, you know the older I get, like I don't really like games that last a hundred, five hundred hours. Like I, I just can't deal with that anymore. Sure, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I think, yeah, the, the more narrow the game is, the more it makes sense that a single developer could just bring what they want to bring to it, and that's what it is, and it does this one job really well. And yeah, I think that's a that's a good um, that's a good point. So, so do you see you see um, game dev at least on like an indie level being a thing that you want to continue doing, like basically indefinitely, right? You said you've it's always been something you've wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it's like a hobby, but I could see myself doing it for a, a while. Right. Like, it'd be fun to, you know, uh, sell a million copies or something, but I don't really see that happening. So um, I love doing game jams, and uh, I want to make some bigger projects, too, because I think some of them need more room to grow. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So well, that's actually a good segue into the the whole... So the the i remember and and do you typically write articles as well or is because i remember i read that one article of yours um and i'm not sure if that's something you typically are in the habit of doing but yeah i've got a uh like a dev blog and so i mainly write about roguelikes i think that's kind of how we really um how i got to know you is that you seem to be traveling in some of the same circles and Mm -hmm. most of the games correct me if i'm wrong i think that you made uh at least in the past were roguelikes um, so yeah. I found a lot of those interesting. I got we got to talk about Oro at some point because that's sure. a, a big favorite. Um, yeah. But I wrote a like a lot of I wrote a four part series called Things I Hate About Roguelikes, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be about and, and again this is traditional roguelikes, yeah. so um, actual it, games that yeah, are like rogue <laughs> turn based games, and you know we could talk about that for an hour. Sure, um, but there, basically a few things is one the controls are terrible in mm-hmm. NetHack. There's 95 separate key bindings. Wow. And uh, the theme is always Tolkien-esque, always uh, fantasy. It tends to be very boring for me. Mm-hmm. I like a, a lot of different themes. And there are there are some great games out there now that have better themes. And just the c- identification is another thing that kind of annoys me. So mm-hmm. I did something interesting in Golden Crone Hotel where in, in a traditional roguelike, you have unidentified items. And when you... You actually talked about this on Roguelike Radio one time. When you like quaff a potion or you read a scroll and you don't know what it does. It could be any of like t- one of 20 things, right? Sure. And dramatically it, different things too. Right. It, it could either like, you know, buff you excellently and you win a huge fight or it just blows you up and you're dead. Yeah. Um, some of those things there's in that heck, there's like a ball and chain. You literally get a ball and chain or there's a scroll for like genocide, you know, think like crazy. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the problem is that I see is that as a, especially as a new player because I'm, I'm always thinking about accessibility because i think the genre as a whole has a big problem getting new people in and accessibility 
mm-hmm. is that uh, you have no idea what those things are. And you're not going to look them up. You're only going to, after playing it for dozens of hours, maybe have an idea of what it is. And even then, it's still just a crapshoot. Right. So I wrote about that topic. I wrote about um, what I called burden of knowledge. At least that's kind of a term I've seen thrown around uh, about from um, like Riot and um, some designers there is that you have to know so many things about the game just to play the game. And most of those things you have to read about. You don't learn them by playing the game. You Mm. have to go read a wiki, a wiki to to go learn them. Um, I think net hack is, is the poster child for this. Um, It's just full of spoilers. And that's, that's kind of opposite of the games. I really like, I really enjoy dungeon crawl stone soup. Mm -hmm. I think that's mostly a game you can play without spoilers and you can learn things as you go along. So uh, that's the way I tried to design my game, mostly mm-hmm. very accessible, low burden of knowledge. Um, and I, so I wrote those articles. Also, I wrote the article that like uh, you saw about a year ago. It was called the post-indie apocalypse or the indie post-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And it was basically about the indie apocalypse and, and just uh, how bad it looked like things were getting. Yeah. And for some reason, I, that's not like, the only thing I wrote about, but it really blew up. So maybe some people know me from that. Yeah, well, and I think that's a really interesting, uh, good. Uh, that's that's one of the main things I want to talk to you about today is that whole topic because uh, I think there's a lot of different angles to approach it from. But while you were talking about roguelikes, it occurred to me that, um, you know, uh, I feel like um, roguelikes, you know, and it, you know, it sort of depends on how you define the term roguelikes. People have been using the term roguelites. Uh, recently for to mean uh you know any single player strategy ish game that has you know like something like a lost state uh and uh you know that kind of thing uh but i i sort of hate that term but uh but the point is i feel like roguelikes like actual games that are like rogue and maybe you know better than me but it feels like that completely just like ended like three years ago or something like or five years ago somewhere in the ballpark in the last like few years it feels like and it may just be because i'm not as connected to that world as much but i i remember around 2010 or 2012 it felt like roguelikes were this emerging thing that like everyone was talking about they were in in the mainstream of conversation now it's just like it just seems like um that genre to the extent that that's a genre and not just you know a a, a game with it, different iterations uh is kind of like over uh what do you think about that huh i um i, I don't know if it really declined or it, i think it's more that the uh the rogue lights or roguelike likes or whatever you want to call them they really overtook the, uh, everything else mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all you see i mean there's some big uh traditional roguelikes being worked on still uh, like in early access i think caves of cut is still going and cogmind is still going uh i think adom is still being worked on i'd be surprised if uh, nethack and dcss aren't also still being worked on right oh of course those big yeah. open source projects yeah it, it's funny i think nethack got the first update uh, a couple of years ago it was the first update in like a decade wow <laughs> just, just imagine following a game and it, it doesn't it goes silent for like a decade then it updates yeah and i think Dungeon Crawl definitely gets regular updates, but then people also dislike that because they keep they don't keep expanding the game. Everything they add, they take something else away, and that kind of frustrates people. And they're also streamlining the game. Mm-hmm. So I feel like following the community, it's it's still pretty um, active, I guess. Mm-hmm. But w- one thing I want to touch on is, you know, as far as roguelite versus roguelike, and this this is absolutely the most boring topic of all time, but huh. um, it, it has to be mentioned is that. In my opinion, we lost the war for that word. 
it's over. Like it was over about five to ten years ago. Which were um, roguelike. We okay. it does not mean a turn-based game anymore. Clearly, hmm. like because um, I read uh, the roguelike subreddit a lot, and what happens is people stumble in there that have you know they have no idea what they're doing, and they sure. just say. Could, could you recommend me some roguelikes? I really like Binding of Isaac and Risk of Rain and, and all that. And they just get completely stomped by people that are trying to be pedantic. And, and I understand where they're coming from because they want to preserve the word. And they, they, they think they own it. You know, like this was ours first, right? Sure, but that, sure. That's just not the way the English language, language works. works. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> like you, that's being, uh, you know, prescriptive, right? You're yeah. trying to say this is, this is what English means. And, and that's right. just not how language works. So I think things have moved on. I think we need... An, I don't know if we're really going to get a new term. I just use the I just use traditional roguelike or turn-based mm. roguelike just to be clear. A and game which is like rogue. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. There was procedural death labyrinth for a while and mm. a bunch of alternatives, but right. um, basically, I just wish that that subreddit was more inclusive and the community was more inclusive. But there's a mm. lot of people that only like playing the older type of games. Yeah, I mean, I think that can happen a lot of times with a genre that, you know, has been that that is sort of uh, uh, or a type of game or, you know, aesthetic that is uh, is very much like not mainstream and has its own little click is that they start, you know, getting a little bit territorial and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's that's usually that's pretty common, I think, in those in those sorts of arenas. Um, I would I would say the, the genre is probably I don't want to say it's going to die off, but um, it, it's nothing compared to the the. the bigger genre of action games and things with meta progression. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, a lot of those games are very interesting. Like, like let's learn from them, right? Like let's take some cues from what's going on in the wider world and not just ignore it. Like right. for instance, uh, Noida came out a few weeks ago and that looks like one of the coolest games in the last decade. And it just got completely shut down. Like no one was talking about it. They're like, this isn't a turn-based game. So we're not going to talk about it. Hmm. Um, and I happen to think, like, because I've, I've, my last project, Golden Crown Hotel, was a traditional roguelike. There's no meta progression. Uh, it's turn-based, and there's no like when you die, you don't get some bonus that helps you in the next, uh, the next run. Mm -hmm. And the people in this community, they really hate meta progression because mm -hmm. they want it to be, be all about your skill, right? right. And they don't want to just be handed some bonus because they played longer and they feel like that's cheating. And, and I understand that. But if you, I think if you talk to most gamers, like mainstream gamers on Steam or just random sampling, most people just they can't stand that idea of, of losing all their progress. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one topic. I, I also think kind of turn-based stuff in general is a little bit more niche mm -hmm. um, compared to real-time because um, I, I had a Let's Player one time that lo booted up the game and they started tapping. And as soon as they realized it was turn-based, they, they're just like, is this a joke? Is it? Yeah. They, they can't be serious. Like... Um, <laughs> I can't. It, I've, I've I've brought turn-based games uh, to cons, and it sort of doesn't matter how many times you tell a person that it's turn-based; they still act as though it's real time, um, unless they're like somebody who's already like trained in the you know the whole kind of subculture of turn-based games. Uh, especially if it's a car uh, single actor game, you know, it's it's one thing if it's like a squad thing. I think people sort of understand like, oh, okay, it's like chess kind of. Um, but if it's a single actor they really expect that it's real time and you can look them in the eye and be like listen this is turn-based when you move that's a turn and the turn will pass you know what i mean and then all the monsters act or whatever and they're like okay got it and then you see them and they're just like mashing the key like super fast like like panicking like as though it were real time and you're like 
okay, it just, it, it's not going to connect. Like, uh, it, it really is this, um, you know, uh, it's, and, and, you know, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it, real life is real time and there's an intuitive quality to, I, I, when I, you know, it's like you move the mouse cursor around the screen and it moves in real time. You know, there's, there's uh, things typically are, are real time. And so it, it makes sense that like, uh, unless there's specific cues, it's hard for, for the, the typical gamer to pick up on uh, the idea of a single actor turn-based game. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it, uh, it's actually really hard to design a game around that because you have, two, like you said, the two level, uh, two skill levels, right? You have the people that know what they're doing. They know this is turn-based. They play very slowly. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned one time that in Oro, people were taking over a minute to decide each single turn. Yeah, the best and, players. And then you, uh, yeah, and then you have the opposite of they're just they're just scrolling through like it's uh, like it's a real time game, mm-hmm. and that's very difficult to balance for both those parties, because I mean if if you kind of try to balance around the people that play kind of willy nilly, then all you, all you have to do is just be patient, and the game becomes so easy. Yeah. Um. So I kind I have that problem with my games is that uh, it, it's hard to satisfy everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, cool. So I want to get into the conversation about uh, about uh, the indie game apocalypse, um, and uh, you know what both of our current thoughts are on this uh, this idea, this meme. Um, you know, uh, so I guess why don't you start with talking about your your article, what its major point was, and whether how your feelings, uh, if if your feelings have changed at all since you wrote that or anything like that. Well, just give me your spiel on on this topic. Yeah, sure. So I wrote this about a year ago. Um, and, you know, this this whole idea of the indie apocalypse or indie apocalypse has been around since about, I'd say, 2015. And if you look at what really drove it, I, I think it has to do with Greenlight when Greenlight came out. Hmm. And it was about the volume of games that were coming out every year was increasing and increasing. And people were starting to notice that there or at least theorizing that there's so many games now, the competition is too high that it's getting almost impossible to sell games on steam and nobody's succeeding. And I don't, I don't quite agree with all that, but I think the main thrust of the article, I wrote this article called the post in the apocalypse. And the the idea is like, you used to be guaranteed some minimal level of discovery and attention and marketing from steam and valve, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's just gone. Like, there's no there's no like floor anymore if you'll you'll get this much attention if you just make a, a like a decent game it's not trash you actually put an effort into it you know you spend a year on it you put it out there and you'll get some attention yeah. and now there's just no floor like yeah that's a good um, way of putting it the, a really good example so the the thing that really triggered me on this to, to write this was uh your game escaped an omnacronom and i'd like to talk about that game yeah me too but also you, you i think you released two games in like the span of a couple weeks and the other game you released, Jelly Bomber, mm-hmm. I, I keep I check on it every once in a while because I'm I'm curious on this topic. I, I check on Steam reviews a lot because Steam rev- the number of Steam reviews that you see is a good proxy for the number of sales. Hmm. Because and I mentioned this in the article, roughly two percent of people that buy a game on Steam will leave a review. Okay. And so the, I think this is called the the guy that came up with the bot slider or something. So it's called the bot slider method. 
And if you basically, this is very rough, but it's kind of an order of magnitude, you know, estimation thing. If you take the number of reviews that you see uh, that have actually sold through Steam and not keys that were bought somewhere else, because they can come from like anywhere given away or whatever. Right. If you take that number and you multiply it by 50, that will give you a rough estimate of how many copies have been sold. Right. And then you also have to consider, you can't just multiply by the price because you have to consider discounts and VAT and taxes and Steam's cut and, and everything else. Well, and also I feel like this equation gets a, a little bit less reliable the lower the overall sales are, right? Because there's more variance. Like, you know, it's like if there's only like five or six reviews, uh, it's it's like that doesn't that you know what I mean like if there's like this this works better on scale is what I'm saying probably but I, I would say in the beginning people are more likely to review the game so okay. maybe the number is like um, lower actually I would guess okay. like if there's zero reviews you might want to be the first person to leave the review right mm -hmm. that I mean at least intuitively that makes sense to me so mm -hmm. for for instance if if you multiply whatever that number is by fifty to get a, a rough estimate. And this, at least for my game, this is this is pretty uh, accurate. Mm -hmm. um, Jelly Bomber has zero reviews, so you could tell me because you have the sales numbers. But I would guess less than like thirty people have bought it. That sounds right. I don't even look at it because it's like too depressing. Uh, so I actually yeah, don't yeah. know. But uh, yeah, it's it's not you know like I don't get paid by Steam, so I assume it's like basically nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it like that doesn't look like a like a clone game it doesn't look like something that's buggy mm -hmm. i haven't played it but it it, it just kind of amazes me like you keith like looking at what you've done over the past few years um you've kind of developed a little bit of a following i would say at least compared to like me being an outsider and, and not really feeling like i have so much of that I, I guess i've developed like a small tiny amount but you, you you've written books right and mm -hmm. people have read them and bought them sure. you have a, a patreon with uh, a few dozen people mm -hmm. you have a, a youtube a uh, few thousand YouTube subscribers or something like that. The, and, you know, a good number of Twitter followers. So, like, the, not all that is, like, super important, but the thing is, is, like, people are paying attention to what you're doing. Right. And then when someone like you, who, you know, has talked a lot about game design, when you release a game and then it basically just goes in the void and nothing happens with it, it, it that's, like, just worrying. That's, like, the canary in the coal mine to me. And that's why I wrote the article is I was looking the day I wrote it, it was I think it was a week or two after your first your escape I'm knocker nom came out mm -hmm. and you had no you had no reviews at that time, which mean again, you probably had less than 50 sales at mm -hmm. the time that I wrote that. Sounds and right. that that just blew my mind, because if you have 50 sales in your first week, your game has been a, a, a yeah, sorry, like I know this is depressing. But no, 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 bluntly, it's... you're that kind of game has has failed like totally. Mm -hmm. And maybe. Yeah. And I'll get to this a little bit later. Maybe through uh, word of mouth, it could pick back up. But um, that that kind of thing just sounds scary, like mm -hmm. as a direction. If you're trying to definitely, if you're trying to make a living as an indie game developer, which I'm not trying to do, uh, to be honest, right. like I, I'm just doing this on the side. But if if you were trying to do that, that's scary. You should really know what the reality is. And then, well, if yeah. Just, and even if you're not trying to make a living exactly, but even, you know, like, I think that it also makes sense to be like, well, you know, I'd make something in return. Like, you know, my, 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 all the work that you put in is, you know, gets you some money, like, you know, pay your travel stipend or something. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, kind of does make sense. 
Um, I do. I definitely have a lot of thoughts about um, Nakernam. I've talked a little bit about it on this podcast and in articles and stuff before. But um, you know, that game was a, a very much like a like an experiment, and I would also say like a, a very much a failed experiment. Um, and I will give you one major. Um, so Jelly Bomber, I, I kind of agree with you that it's sort of weird that it it didn't didn't get more uh, maybe uh, like attention and feedback. However, here's one thing I will say. For both of those games, I did very little marketing. Uh, you know, I did very little of like trying to get the word out about them. Like I, I did some, but uh, you know, there's a lot of things that one should do that I definitely just didn't do. And part of that's because they're both they're both pretty prototypey and they were both um, you know unfinished in their own ways and. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't take it too seriously that those didn't go anywhere. However, I do think it is, you know, kind of, it is a little bit worrying. I like, cause I'm picturing like someone who's like just getting started, right? And they don't have, you know, the Twitter following I have and the com- community that I have and, and the certain things that give me like some kind of credibility. Um, and they're like, wow, okay, so even if I have that much of whatever, you know, whatever Keith has, I'm still like, there's still like no floor at all on, on stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, that is, I think there's something valid there, but I would warn against taking it too uh, seriously because A, I didn't do any real promotion seriously. And B, Omnocronom, I mean, I think Omnocronom is a squarely like, bad game in that it just it just doesn't work um it was it was it's a very experimental strange game and i never was able to figure out how to get it to work in like three years of major overhauls and iterations and and you know i'm okay with that because like i i my thing is half a game developer and half like a theorist sort of so uh you know i think a failed experiment is like is kind of its own sort of success i I learned a lot from that process and uh but i i think that that should be taken into account in thinking about that and certainly you know i mean there's tons of developers out there who who uh, who have made better games and have probably sold just as few or less than i have so it's like it's it's hard to and and you actually cited a lot of that data in your because uh, you looked at the actual like Steam charts you know in a sort of a meta analysis kind of way right like you aggregated a bunch of uh, data together and 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 found and there's been other people who have done that as well I remember there was a video oh, yeah, that was yeah. going around yeah so so it, it is real there's actually definitely a real dynamic that has happened here um, and it is definitely concerning I am somebody who I would like to make a living making games and but I'm I'm I guess my feelings on and maybe this can take us into the next stage of the conversation which is like um even to the extent that this is a real thing um you know and it's it's interesting because like we all have our own like personal biases based on our own backgrounds i brought jason Rohrer on to the show and he's of course like no there's no indie, indie game apocalypse at all what are you talking about just make a great game and you'll do great and it's like yeah okay you know that's that's easy for you to say, right? Um, but uh, and whereas for me, it's easy for me to say that the 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 apocalypse is real and no one can make any money. Um, so you know, like we all have our own like perspective and uh, and position that informs that perspective to some extent. So it's really hard to like break out of that. And I guess the one thing I will I'll just prompt you with is. Um, even to the extent that the indie apocalypse is a real thing, I think we should probably like kind of choose to believe that it isn't a real thing and just kind of like make our best work and 
you know, see if we can be surprised, right? Is that how? Oh it? yeah, I've heard people make this argument, and it's not a bad argument. Like it makes a lot of sense. Is that um, it's, it's kind of like the free will argument. Even if you don't have free will, maybe you should just believe you have free will mm-hmm. because you'll probably act. Uh, it, but it's along the same lines. Is that regardless of how hard it is, you should probably act like you like you have control, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you act like it's all luck, then you're not going to put effort into what you're doing, right? And you're just going to say, well, it's not up to me, and it's just up to the market. Uh, you know, r- random things that happen. Sure. But if you if you think you have a little bit of control, then you'll focus on those things you have control over. And only let me like give a disclaimer: is that. I, I really don't want to sound like uh, this is all I ever talk about. This is just yeah. one blog post I made. Sure, sure, sure. And, I, and I'm really kind of concerned about coming across as the wine, the guy that always just whines. Yeah, about no, I get you. To totally. Sell games, but like, um, I, I took a lot of what people said in response to the article to heart. Like, I really did, and yeah. I've really tried to think about that for the games that I, I plan in the future. Um, okay, so you just said a lot of stuff that uh, we need to unpack. Uh, I, I do want to get back to ETO in a minute. Sure. And then also, you, you kind of said that uh, both your games you didn't think were very good games. Did you really work on ETO for three years? Uh, yeah, a little over three years. Actually, I don't. I do think Jelly Bomber is a good game. I think it's a. I think it's a very good game, actually. But it, uh, there's a question of a good game, and then there's a question of like a good product. You know what I mean? And I think as a product, it's like. It's a little bit like alpha E when you play it, you know, it's like a, a little bit thin, uh, but I do think it's a very good game and an innovative game and takes, you know, the old Dr. Mario concept and turns it into this weird strategy game. So I think it I think it deserves more uh, attention than it's getting. ETO, I think probably only academics should try it once or twice. Uh, and uh, and that's about and that, that's about it. I don't think it, it, it really works as a thing to like play for fun, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, uh, the other thing, disclaimer is that like I haven't done a lot of the number crunching. There have been people that have done that that I mentioned. Like, Mike Rose is a good resource. He's done several GDC talks about just pure numbers and analysis. And the thing is, is like his argument is even when you look at the numbers and you take away the games that are just trash, because that's that's what everyone responds with is yes, there's more games, but they're all garbage anyway. And mm-hmm. I, I don't quite believe that. Like, I think there's people earnestly trying to do this for real. And obviously, they're not very skilled, so some of what they're going to make is not going to be polished and not going to have great art. But mm-hmm. people are trying to make, you know, a lot of uh, decent games. Mm-hmm. But even if you take out all the garbage, it's like the people that are not trying or the clones or whatever, it, it's still like every year is worse, yeah. right? Like yeah. every year you go back, if you give advice from the previous year about how things work and how to make a game and how to market it, that advice doesn't apply anymore because it just got way worse mm. and people are selling worse on average. And that's yeah. that's like, again, it, it doesn't apply so much if you're just trying to do it as a hobby other than less or fewer people are going to play your game, which, you know, that, that concerns me. But like you should be very, very careful if you're stepping into this and expecting to make a lot of money off of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny because it's uh, my other thing that I wanted to do growing up when I was, you know, like coming out of high school. And I my first uh, attempt at an undergrad was in music, uh, you know, music composition because I wanted to be like a rock star. And it's like it's kind of become a similar game, you know, of trying to like make money with your band uh, is kind of like it's become like that with uh, with indie dev at this point, like. 
you know, it's it's almost like a like a it can it feels sometimes. I don't think it's that bad yet, actually, but uh, it um, it does sort of feel like a lottery winning sort of scenario to actually uh, make you know enough money to really make a living off of, uh, let alone. Let alone, and that's the other thing that that maybe we can talk about too is the fact that it seems like everything's very polar polarized in terms of like uh, you're going to make zero, or your game is going to you know go on Kotaku or whatever, and then you're going to make you're going to sell like millions of copies. And I think you mentioned something in our emails about Slay the Spire, and maybe you wanted to talk about that. Oh sure, yeah. Uh- I guess the main, like I have takeaways from this after, after like looking at all this and, and seeing what people responded with the, the band analogy is great because it's exactly what everybody says is that it's becoming like, it's just a passion, right? You do mm-hmm. it, but you're, you're 95% of people or 99% of people are not going to go anywhere with it. And, and you know what? Maybe that's fine. Like maybe the fact that steam opened up and there's steam direct and everyone can publish th- th- people have argued that's actually a good thing. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't like disagree because I would not be on Steam if this if none of this happened, right? Mm. Like I never would have gotten the motivation and, and the opportunity. So like overall, I don't want to. I, I definitely want to say like it's a good thing, but it you know you have to stay cognizant of it. Hmm. So where Slay the Spire comes in is I watched several GDC videos. Um, I didn't go, but you know I, I watched the videos after they published all you know all of them a few months later, and there were that's the way to do it, honestly. Yeah, it's expensive, <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. But I noticed the trend and kind of how these things are going uh, and watched a few talks. One was by the, the Slay the Spire uh, developer. I think it was Casey Yano. And I mean, that game, I just bought the game and it, it's great. It, it is a great game and it's very addictive, which I do want to talk about the addictiveness of games mm-hmm. if, if we could do that by the end. But for sure. Um, and I think I, I saw that come up on Twitter is like uh, someone was saying, oh, this this game Slay the Spire is like deeply immoral. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> Because it's so addictive. Mm-hmm. But the thing I notice is in this talk is most of the marketing advice that people typically give you will be like, make a website and then make a press kit and then send emails out to you know hundreds of people and then contact the press and contact YouTubers. And the thing is, is like these people that like these developers, these two developers that made this game that went on to sell two million copies. Just like stop to think about that. Like this game is an unbelievable success. They went on to sell 2 million copies. So this, this stuff is gold, right? They sent out 600 emails to like press and streamers and they got no response at all. Mm. Nothing. And, and like you have to take that and look at it and think something has changed. Like, yeah. And this, there's another talk I'm going to get to, but the basic point is that the press is dead. Definitely. in, in it's effects. It's, it's not what it was five years ago or ten years ago. If you it, going, you just mentioned if you were on Kotaku, like it would blow up and you would sell like you know so many copies. But like I don't know if that's true really. Like mm. if you get on a major game site, it might not mean anything. Yeah, that's true. But it, really it's would, a shot at least. It's a possibility. Yeah, it's, a, it's a shot. It's some exposure. But that's one takeaway is that all that traditional marketing stuff people tell you is like have social media, have a website. Yeah. Who who's visiting your website if nobody <sighs> knows about your game? You're right. trying to sell people on your game, and now you have to sell them on your website. That, like that doesn't make any sense to me. And the yeah. press, the, the press thing is, I, I mean, I, I would still do it. I probably will still do it in the future, but it, I don't think it's really going to equate to anything. Uh, one thing is that if you look at Metacritic for, especially, I mentioned this in my article, is if you look at Metacritic for certain games, even like um, 
I, I forgot what it was, like RimWorld or something. That mm-hmm. game was so huge, and it had like five reviews on Metacritic. Hmm. It, it's ridiculous. Like they're just there's so yeah. many. The thing is, it's like there's so many games that I don't think the the press has the time to review all of them. At least if, they, if it's AAA, they're going to review it. But if it's like indie, they're not going to really touch it, right? Yeah, and I, I wonder if that is a matter of so many games, if it's just a supply and demand thing, or if it's actually if there is sort of like a value shift that has changed, and like they just they're just like kind of not interested in indie games for some reason. Like so, uh, another example that I think maybe be similar to your Slay the Spire example is uh, David Serlin's Fantasy Strike, a fighting game. Which, I mean, uh, is a, you know, I'm not a big fighting game fan guy in general, but, like, it is a f- extremely well-polished, balanced, designed, you know, innovative fighting game uh, that, uh, you know, is absolutely, like, the furthest thing from, like, you know, spam shovelware or whatever, and he can't get IGN to review. He actually just was posting, I think yesterday, that, like, there was like a player choice award sort of thing that people could vote on and on IGN and he, his fighting game won that player choice and IGN still hasn't reviewed his, uh, his game and like, he can't get people to review the thing. And, you know, and he's also, he's talked a little bit about like, yeah, you know, it's like sales are just like not there for this game, even though he's on switch, he's on PS four, he's, he's got cross platform play. It's like, it's a really impressive product. And yet it's like, he just can't get um, the the eyeballs of like like the really big powerful eyeballs, and I, I wonder if it's it is just a supply and demand thing, or if it's like the the mainstream has just kind of like tuned out of indie games, maybe because they're just like there's just too much, there's too many games in general, or I don't know what it is exactly, but like. There was this coolness to indie games back in the the Braid days. You know, they had the indie game, the movie, and all this stuff. And there was, it just, it, it seemed like it was a really cool thing for a little while. And now it's just like, they just don't care. Like it seems like people just don't care unless it's already like this massive phenomenon. And then they're, and then they'll be like, yeah, okay, sure, all right. Now it's selling millions of copies. All right, fine. Um, then I'll pile on some even more attention and press. But uh, until that point, it's like I just, I, I have this sense that people just kind of don't. They're not interested. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point I hadn't really considered. But it it does make sense because if you think about it from these news sites, right, in general, the trend of of news and journalism has just been that it's been decimated, right? It's extremely Mm -hmm. hard to make money on these things. It's extremely hard to make it as a writer. Um, And that if you go to these sites, like even the, the ones that have covered indie games in the past a lot, and they're really like, they have to focus on what people are playing, mm. right? They have to because that's where the ad revenue is going to be. Right. And and there was a screenshot posted the other day on Twitter, and it was like um, there was a whole section of like 12 little like thumbnails, and they were all like Red Dead Redemption uh, like guides and stuff. And this was on one website. It's like they, they're not going to play your indie game anymore. They're just, they're just playing Red Dead Redemption and writing about that because that's selling millions of copies, and that's what people want to read about. Sure. And, and that's not totally accurate, but – there's like an element of truth to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say like, yeah, the novelty of indie is probably gone because it's not as such it's not such a big deal as it was ten years ago. And also, if if you have an indie game that's selling millions of copies, yeah, sure, we'll write about it. If it's Dead Cells, if it's Slay the Spire, yeah. But if if it's a like new game, we've got you got to realize like these people, um, 
journalists and streamers, they have inboxes that are flooded with hundreds to thousands of emails a day. There's yeah. there's no way. They, they just can't keep up. They can't read the emails. They're certainly not going to respond and review and play all of those games. So I, I I don't really know what else they're... And it's only going to get worse, right? Right. I mean, and in a way, it's like it's it's sort of like this is like the conclusion, like the sort of logical conclusion of the way information is disseminated and the way I guess like attention and wealth and everything sort of just coalesces coalesces in in our system. Our our it may be a quality of the internet or of like our economic system, or something. But the the idea is that like. Yeah, I can I can totally see how, you know, and I, I have people who I know people who have worked in, in journalistic, uh, you know, jobs at IGN and things like that. And yeah, like if you think of it this way, like uh, if they write about some indie game that no one knows about right now, they're not like they're not making they're not pumping up their website. They're kind of like giving some of their website's resources to some, you know, small upcomer. Whereas right, if they sharing, latch right? on to like the new Rockstar game or whatever, they're riding this big wave of attention economy. And so, yeah, it all I mean, there's this weird monopolistic quality to it. And I don't I mean, that's I guess that's like way above the pay grade of an indie developer. But at the same time. Uh, like in terms of how to solve that, but at the same time, I, I'm I'm definitely thinking more about how there's got to be some way to kind of like circumvent or like you know short circuit things and and develop your own. You know, my my dream is to is the indie dev who has a Patreon that's supported by their players and or something like that, a subscription service of some sort, and they're supported by that and 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 they just have this community and it's like slowly building over time and it's just completely separate from all this noise. Um, but I also think that it's like, well, how do you how do you carve that out in the first place? You know, that that's kind of where I am in my game dev career right now. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, like, I, I opened a Patreon and I have nine Patreons, which I, I love them all to death. That That's so awesome that people contribute their time and money. Mm -hmm. But, it, it, like, how do you build that? Like, how do you how do you get to that point? Yeah. That's, I mean, there, there are probably some there are people doing it, definitely. Sure. Um, but, like, you know, it, not everybody. No. I, I would say, like, a, a hand. Um, let, me, let me just throw out a, a metaphor that I've been thinking about and I think applies to what we were just talking about, the, the news sites and everything, is that the way people typically describe this whole situation is that there are more games coming out every year, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the graph, the Steam charts and everything, that's absolutely true, although the thing is it's kind of leveling off because once the floodgates are open, there, there's not really anywhere else to go. The people that realize they can release their game pretty much guaranteed on Steam, they made their game two or three years ago, and now it's on Steam, and, and there's not there, we shouldn't really expect that much more increase. But you're not just competing against the new games, right? You're competing against everybody's backlog. Mm. So the way I think about this is kind of like a Thanksgiving dinner. Not just like every year, but like all of us that have a Steam catalog and we have been collecting games over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. it, it's like sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner and you're just getting like you're eating and eating and eating and getting more satiated and more stuffed. And we all have our Steam libraries with hundreds of games and they're like, there's more, you've got bundles. So a lot of these games are practically free, if not free. You've got two free games coming out on the Epic Store every month, right? And it's like, we're not just like, we're not just stuffed. We're at like the third slice of pie stage, right? Like the only thing that you're going to eat at this point is like the best piece of pie you've ever seen in your entire life. 
Right. And if, if someone hands you, you know, turkey, you're going to be like, well, turkey's great, but like I'm stuffed, right? I just yeah. can't take anymore. So yeah, I actually, think the- I thought you were going to go with that uh, Thanksgiving metaphor that like uh, it's like you're at a table and they keep bringing more food. And when you eat food, it actually doesn't disappear. It stays there. You know what I mean? Like it's almost like, the, <laughs> right? Because like the old games, it's not like the old games go away. The game from two, three, four, five years ago is still, you know, dominating the, the Steam charts. Um, you know, like Counter-Strike Go or like, uh, I don't know, like there's all these. Gary's Mod. Gary's exactly. Mod. Like the, those just like have this chunk of the pie and they're just like never letting it go. And, uh, and, and there's more of those every year. And so it's like, not only is the rate of increased food coming to the table, but the food kind it never disappears either exactly that's that's the point i'm kind of driving at is that you're you're not just competing with the stuff that's out now you're competing with everything that ever came out before and and maybe not so much but like you're definitely competing with triple a games that came out five years ago and you know and and the the most classic games of all time and they're Mm -hmm. they're dirt cheap and that's like it's only gonna get worse in that aspect yeah, well, so my where I go uh, in terms of how do I think about that is um, that indie developers, in order to compete with that, the only thing that I can offer to compete with that is the sort of sort of like this uh, experience economy style uh, thing of like. I'm like in real time developing this thing. You can come here and be a part of this and actually like help me, you know, develop this and design this and work with me on it and be like a part of this, this experience sort of. Um, and that's the only thing I can think of that's, you know, or, or something along those lines, like, you know, some sort of like gimmick, I suppose, or, or, uh, maybe that's not the right word for it, but, um, you know, something where, that 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 comes to mind is like how you could possibly even hope you can't compete with these games on their their terms right like that's that's not going to happen like um so so you ha- obviously we have to come up with other terms if we if we are to uh survive and and be something that that thrives and i guess you know maybe that's maybe that's always the uh the question in in art and being a working artist is like you know, it's almost maybe it's always a question or not always, but like quite often a uh, question of creating new terms on which you can win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Changing the rules sure. of the game. Yeah. I mean, one thing is that you, you've got to do something unique, right? Obviously. Or, or it's just people are going to be like, I played that. But it's not just that. I, I feel like the bar, the quality bar is being raised every year. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you go back to games that came out in 2010 ish and, and were pretty big hits, if they came out today, they just they they would go nowhere. Like yeah. I very, very strongly believe that. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's fair. Maybe that's just the way it is, but I'll tell you, like, I actually, I think you're onto something. And the way I've looked at this from reviewing a lot of developers and specifically like a lot of, um, postmortems at GDC is that the games that are taking off basically have a few characteristics. They're games that are very addictive and very open-ended and they're games that just basically you can play forever. And they're also developed forever. And that kind of goes along the lines of what you're saying is like, uh, I I very strongly believe that for indies, at least early access is still like a thing that you have to use. Hmm. Um, The three topic, the three talks I saw specifically that I think really like um, that really talk about this a lot. Like I said, the Slay the Spire one, the Subnautica, there's a Subnautica talk about the launch of the game, the design. And then there's the one by Jason Rower that also talks about the launch of his game. And the theme of all of them that I could see is that 
they would launch the game and basically nothing would happen. Like nobody knew about it. Right. Hmm. And, and the previous way you looked at it a few years ago was that you would get all this marketing buildup and you could do all this press attention. And then on day one, you would launch and you would hopefully sell most of the copies you're going to sell, like, or, or a large number. And then it's just going to kind of taper off. And they kind of saw the opposite thing. Like Slay the Spire sold, I think they said about 2000 copies in two weeks in the first two weeks. Hmm. Now, that's not like, that's not a total failure, but after they work on it, two two people work on it for like three years, it's probably going to be minimum wage, right? Yeah. It, it's not really that great. But then like a few a few weeks later, they got picked up by a very popular Chinese streamer. And then suddenly this game is, is huge in China. Like half their players are Chinese and the game is not even translated. And then, they, I mean, to make a long story short, I'm sure there's more stuff that goes on. They, they go on to sell two million copies. From like your your first week sales typically are going to be about like twenty percent of your first year sales. That that's the the numbers I've seen um, in some analysis. Mm -hmm. So if you sell a thousand copies in the first week, you're not you sell I don't know five thousand copies in the first year. That's not very good, right? Yeah, and then they yeah. went on to sell two million. It was I think the story behind Subnautica was similar. And this is a team that has like twenty or thirty people working on it. Um, wow. And they're making this really detailed. Uh, beautiful 3D game, and it basically like they're not really selling enough to stay alive. And then randomly, they go from not selling enough to at some point streamers pick it up, and they're selling like infinite copies, it's essentially infinite money. Right. And this, and the same story with uh, One Hour One Life is that the launch didn't really look good, and then it just got better and better. So the way I'm looking at this now going forward is, in order to make this work along these same lines you're definitely not going to be able to make a consumable game. You're not going to be able to make a story game or a content game. And you're not going to be able to make something that is playable and beatable in like two to five hours. Mm -hmm. Right. I feel like this is a huge uh, mistake I made in golden crone hotel. Is that like, while I wanted to make a tightly scoped game and you could probably play it. If you really got into it and checked all the little corners, you could probably play it for a hundred hours, mm -hmm. but you're not going to play it for a thousand hours. Got and it. I think the the games that are really succeeding are like are are they're getting they're getting their hooks into people and they're getting people to play over the course of months and months and months and people are really getting into the updates and early access. I, I think that's a consistent theme I've seen is that for some reason if you just release a game, people will ask you, well, are you going to update it? I've got mm. that all the time. Are you going to update Golden Crown Hotel? Yeah. Uh, no, I worked on it for like. I've worked on it for four years and I spent one year in early access working on it. And they're like, Oh, well I'm used to games that get updated, you know, forever. They want a service basically. And, and that's, what's interesting about the whole retail, you know, purchase it once and then get an infinite service kind of approach. It's it really, it, it's a misaligned incentive between the, uh, the, the developer and the player. Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm with that player. Like I, I, for me, I am I'm pretty like, especially for the kinds of games that I'm interested in, you know, like these sort of strategy game type things. I I am interested to know that they are still going to be patching it and and working on it because you know, uh, it, there's 
there's there's so it's kind of a never ending uh you know quest to to like to balance games and to and to make sure that not just that they're balanced but that they are bringing out the best version of themselves and and fighting you know fighting back the sort of entropy of these dominant strategies and whatever so i i am also i i'm with that and actually that's that's um rather um comforting to me and i, I so part of me wonders if oro hadn't been this six year long slog where we started the development in like hacks nme and it's like all like bundled up with old deprecated flash software so we basically the short story is we can't update it but i sort of part of me wonders like oro is i think like a thousand hours type of game and i wonder if like if we had been able to continue updating it if we had actually you know maybe it could have uh become uh at least a decently popular game and i i i feel like um you know, my games that I'm working on now going forward, it will be easier for me to actually, um, you know, follow that rubric. And uh, and yeah, so, I mean, I find that kind of comforting, actually, a little bit. The only depressing thing, and I think it works great for me. I'm into roguelikes. I, I, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I might just develop my next game until, like, I die. Like uh-huh. I just to make it so big and so many things that can happen and just keep adding and adding and adding and stay mm-hmm. hell. I might stay in early access for 10 years. Like people complain about early access, but there are early access games that are doing really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a strategy uh, to, you just touched on Oro. So I got to talk about that is one of my favorite games of all time. Sweet. And it, I think it's, yeah, I think it's criminal that that game is not more popular. Uh, it, it doesn't look like it sold very well on Steam, and it's like, at this point, we're we're talking about just make a good game, and and the, you know the marketing will take care of itself, and word of mouth, and it's just like, what happened? Like this game should be selling better. So I I wanted to ask you a few questions about. That. Sure. Um, the only thing I don't like about the game is there's a few bugs in there. Mostly I can avoid them, but there's like a couple bugs that I'll stumble into randomly, um, and I I think you mentioned. You just can't update the game now, right? It's Pretty in much, an old yeah. version of Flash or something. Yeah, yeah. That's like that's the only complaint I have. But the strategy and the Elo system and and the art, like I, I'm kind of obsessed with the art. It just looks so good. Wow, um, I will pass that on to the artist uh, who is my housemate. He will love to hear that. It's Blake Reynolds. Um, he's he worked really hard on that art, and uh, and he, you know, it's it's kind of a it's it's working in a weird sort of genre where uh people didn't i feel like we didn't get enough recognition for the art for because it's also it's because it's um it's kind of a weird uh, uh pixel density it's actually rather high res for pixel art and so i think yeah. for a lot of people it didn't even read as pixel art i think a lot of people saw it and they were just like oh it's like I don't know, like vector or something, or some people just said like, oh, it looks like pixelated. Like they thought it was just like high res paintings that had been like, you know, like mosaic filtered down or something. But um, it's actually like, you know, legit pixel art hand done uh, in the style of like uh, a kind of a weird era of pixel art, sort of like the later, you know, like PlayStation one, uh, if they would still be doing pixel art or, or uh, TG 16 or something like that. Yeah, I actually remember a few years ago there was an article. There was an article written uh, on Dino Farm about like how great, you know, how much effort was put into this art and how no one appreciated it. Yeah, it was like, oh, this is so depressing. Yeah, like, I yeah, really yeah. love pencil art, but like, yeah, it's kind of true. Is if you're gonna do it, you've kind of just got to, you've either got to come up with a new style 
like uh, something like Hyperlight Drifter or something like that. Or if you, you've got to go retro and yeah. appeal to the people that want like the 16-bit RPG. Agreed. Yeah. So have you ever thought about like a sequel or something like that? We've been working for a while on a game called Alakaram, which is is a total spiritual sequel to Aura. We have some a lot of work actually done on it. We've been working on it on and off. It's just that we don't have the time and energy and effort to like put, you know, to really to dive into that. So we've been doing more like Jelly Bomber updates for now. But the the goal is at some point to do this spiritual sequel to Oro. Um, there's some stuff on Dino Farm Games about it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's it'll solve uh all the problems of oro and uh but have the basic you know gameplay still there that's very cool i think if i were to give you some advice i I don't know if you need my advice but just what what all we talked about is that you seem to be like very excited about a lot of different ideas at one time and i think any person who's done game development knows what that's like is that you're working on one project and then you get kind of excited about another project and and this happens to me all the time I think what the market is shifting to and, and talking about, you know, all the all these GDC talks and everything is that the games that are going to win, they're going to be games that you play for a thousand hours and mm-hmm. are polished to hell. And there's just especially I don't know what your situation is, if you're if you're doing this full time or part time. But like if, if you have like any sort of restriction, um, you I feel like although it's risky at this point, it might be better to put all your eggs in one basket and make bigger and more polished projects. Yeah. And, and so right now I, I, so I, I just did a very small Kickstarter for a board game, a card game, and that went really well. And actually I'm really happy with how that's going and that, but that's a card game. So it's like, you know, it's going to be kind of like one and done just by the nature of it. And it's a small Kickstarter, you know, we printed about, we're, we're going to print like 500 copies maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think that was a successful thing, but that I'm basically, you know, done with that pretty much. And at this point I have a, uh, like a squad tactics, uh, sort of like advanced Wars style game that I'm working on. I just wrote an article about it yesterday. You can find it on uh, my site. But um, uh, that's going to be my big because I'm with you completely that, like, yeah, you know, especially when you're a solo developer, like, you can't have like three different games in the air. That's just not going to work. And, you know, Omnacronom, had it been fun to play at all, would have been my thing. Like, that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be my game that I worked on for like 10 years for my whole life. Uh, And I wanted Oro to be that too. But um, unfortunately, Oro was, you know, just a very fraught development, um, uh, which made that impossible. But um, yeah, no, my dream has always been, I just want this one game to be like my, you know, League of Legends, what League of Legends is to Riot, like uh, that I can just keep working on and iterating on forever. And so it's just a matter of getting that one thing going, uh, you know, both from a gameplay perspective and also from a technical perspective. Uh, now I'm, I'm quite competent with Unity and stuff and Unity is extremely well supported. I don't think that a game made in Unity right now is going to be like become this like deprecated, you know, arcane thing that no one knows how to fix uh, in 10 years. I, I hope so. I really hope so. No, I, I think it'll be fine. I mean, we uh, we we started Oro in 2011. Uh, do you know Cardinal Quest by any chance? Yeah. You yeah. I think you worked on with the programmer, right? Ito? 
Yeah, Ito worked with me on Oro, um, and but I so he had made uh, Cardinal Quest, and I was like, "Hey, let's make a game together." And I wasn't a programmer at all at the time, and he's like, "All right." So, and I was like, "We're gonna make like a three month game. It's gonna be called Oro. We'll be made, we'll just bang it out really fast. It's like this super simple roguelike." He's like, "Okay." I heard of this weird uh, software platform called Hacks NME, and it'll be fine for what we're doing because we wanted to make it cross platform and stuff. And Unity was still all three D and weird at the time. And uh, so we chose that, and that was kind of like our our uh, original sin that uh, doomed the game uh, for, and then other things on top of that later going forward. But um, yeah, so so that, that's the only reason I'm not doing that now is the technical uh, issues. I wish we could just update Oro. That would be fantastic. I wish we could still update 100 Rogues, which is our first game. Um, that has also, on top of technical issues, it also has like legal issues because someone else claims to own the game. Uh, and so that's the only reason I'll update that one. So it's a very frustrating situation situation but i i'm completely in agreement and my my goal in life is to have my you know keith Burgun game that i just make better and better and better and better and i'm hoping that my current one gem wizards tactics will be will be that so we'll see how it goes cool yeah i i think sorry you cut out a little bit there can you say that again uh uh-oh I'm not hearing you anymore. Sounds like your mic's cutting out. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I was like typing into the Discord thing like an idiot. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I don't know about Oro. Like, I don't know if that game could really, it's the type of game that could really be developed forever, but I think ETO could because it, it's kind of trying to mimic in a way League. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like where you are planning on going with this and whatnot. But I think we're both uh, League of Legends players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm totally, I'm really bad at the game, but you know, I, I love league of legends actually like the, the updating is kind of annoying for someone who just plays it casually because they keep adding stuff and it's so hard to keep, um, yeah. you know, there's like 150 champions, like talk about this thing of, of the burden of knowledge, which I think is a term Riot came up with, or at least they talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. And this game has the worst burden of knowledge of anything on the planet. There's, there's 150 champions and each one has five abilities essentially i think it's 166 now oh god so yeah so they have like four active abilities and they have a passive and you've got to know all of those in detail like in in extreme detail if you have any chance of playing this game and so that you know that's some 700 abilities and some of them are simple and some of them are like an essay and it's like what well, it, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, that's technically true. Uh, I think pr- from a practical perspective, like when you sit down to play League of Legends, you know, and you're like a bronze or silver player or whatever, and you've played, you know, 100 matches or 200 matches or whatever, um, I think that, you know, you, I still don't know all the abilities in the game. I've, I've been playing since 2014, and I still don't know all the abilities in the game, but I know enough about like the kinds of things that can happen in the game and i know like some basic rules about like okay don't get too close to someone when you're like low health like there are a lot of like guidelines that you can use which basically get you over the finish line in terms of being able to actually play the game you're right that like if you want to play it at like a you know a a high level you do need to know everything and technically speaking you know like there's definitely when you're especially when you're starting like so many of your deaths are like oh 
I didn't know that that character could do that. So I guess that's a life toll right there. Um, and so, you know, yeah, you're, I think you're, you're, you're right. It's just that in practice, you can kind of just, you know, like sort of focus on what you're doing and, and there's other monsters and they're like doing other stuff and, you know, and, and you're focusing on like sort of simpler things like taking towers, taking objectives and that kind of stuff. And so it, it kind of ends up like not being a massive problem in practice. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Uh, so there's like, there's the macro and the micro. If you know how to take objectives and you know how to just play defensively and, and, and farm. Yeah, that's fine. The, the problem comes along when you're, you're trying to play your lane opponent and you don't really understand what your lane opponent does. Um, yeah. and, and the example I always go back to is NAR is that I played top lane. Typically I play Renekton one trick pony only. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is really funny. Actually, I was getting like trashed in all these games. This, this is like, this game is so toxic <laughs> and I, like, I really can't deal with it. It's so bad, yeah. but um, I, I try to mute chat sometimes and people were giving me crap because I have a million mastery points on Renekton, which just means I played a lot of games as him, but I uh -huh. don't have some other thing called mastery level seven. Okay. I'm like, man, I must be really bad. I don't have that. And then I looked it up and it's like, oh, I just have to craft that. And in 10 seconds I'd crafted it and yeah. people had been giving me crap about it for like the last 10 games. Huh? <laughs> so Interesting. that was, that was funny. But the problem is like when you're, you're the, when you're fighting an opponent, like the game is kind of on this knife's edge hmm. where if you're, if your opponent's like 51% better than you, they're maybe, maybe random things are going to happen. And they're not going to eke out an advantage, but if they happen to get an advantage over you and beat you, then it's like when they come back, they're going to be better and they're going to be better. And it's just snowballs. Right. So like yeah. these small, these small things that you don't understand really end up snowballing really badly. Um, yeah, so no, anyway, I think that's true. But then that, that's also happening on all like on all sides, like constantly throughout the whole match. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of like you're rolling a ton of dice type of situation where it all kind of averages yeah, maybe out. Even <laughs> out, out a little bit, but yeah. definitely like when you get a little higher, like I'm not that great, but like I guess when you get a little higher, you kind of have you have to know what everybody does and you have to know stuff. And a lot. the thing, though, about the promise of ETO, though, was I think it was a cool mashup. I think it was a cool idea. Is that nobody? I don't think anybody really mixed mobile with another genre. The best I can think of is like maybe first-person shooters, right? With mm -hmm. Overwatch or I don't even. I'm, no, that doesn't really count. Maybe like um, what am I thinking of? Wasn't it like Paragon was a like a MOBA like that Epic was making? I'm not sure. I don't know about that one. I, I think I think Epic was making a a MOBA and it just didn't go anywhere. But like nobody's really taken this genre, which is very popular, right? Yeah. I think League was at one point the most popular game. Certainly not now. Um, maybe that's Fortnite. But like, why not mix that with other genres? And I think the idea of a turn-based MOBA, roguelike—that's that's awesome. Like, we should really somebody should do that. And it, it, I'm tempted, like, you know, try my hand at it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think Escape the Omnicronom had a lot of cool ideas. I think it. I'm not sure if the the design itself was flawed, but there's so much strategy in League, like especially the vision and what objectives to take and how to itemize. Mm -hmm. All that stuff could really be translated into a turn-based game. I, I will say, so my take on Omnicronom, and if you were going to make your own stab at that sort of thing, um, I, I definitely, you know, recommend 
trying that and playing with that. And, and I also am shocked that there's not more experimentation in uh, using that sort of lane pushing uh, mechanism. I mean, for me, I have a pretty cynical view of, you know, our institutional and like cultural uh, knowledge of game design. And I think that we just, the reason we don't do more experimentation with that is because we have no idea how to do that. Like we just don't have the, the like sort of the intellectual tools in order to like, to, to, to mess with a, a design like that. I think that we, uh, and then also, of course, you know, there, it just costs a lot of money and it is very risky. Um, so, but what I will say is the, if I could change one thing about Omnocronom to, to, if I like were to start up development again, um, I would, I would kind of restart it as a real time game. Um, and that's because uh, I think that those games have to have a pretty big map. And actually, I think the worst thing about Omnocronom is the fact that you have to like move, you know, with like single tap sort of roguelike style movement over like relatively large eras and go back and forth in the way that you would in a MOBA. Um, and I feel like there's something just aesthetically really not good about that uh and you know it doesn't have the value of like roguelikes where you're exploring new terrain all the time you're uncovering new fog and finding new treasure and all that sort of stuff um it, it's it's more of a sport and in that context that that to me has that's my biggest take about omnocronom and why it just kind of doesn't work is that it's turn-based on a large grid that you retread over and over and over again and there's something about that that's that just like uh, doesn't work. And I think that, you know, maybe there's a way to make it work. Uh, but that would be my, for whatever it's worth, that would be my, if you're starting a new one, I would recommend making it not turn-based or take some totally different tact and make it some small grid thing. That's a little bit more of like a tactical puzzly thing, but then it's like, then it's like, is it even really related to, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of League of Legends style game anymore? Um, yeah, so that, that's my, my thoughts on that issue. Okay. I mean, definitely the problem I saw was that one of the issues, there's, there's three lanes and not really played it, which match the three lanes in a MOBA. The funny thing about a MOBA to me is that there's all these different games, and th this is the most specific genre, right? It's almost like a genre about playing baseball and you have like they're all so specific like every every moba has three lanes and it has a jungle and it has like turrets and it has a nexus right it's like, a single game design like like roguelikes yeah. i mean well, or like, well <laughs> the, the, I, I would say it's like way it just feels way more specific than a roguelike right maybe it's just the fact that there's all this um stuff that just has to be in the game no you're right um, there's more structure it's more of yeah. a design i think yeah and and the, the three lane part is that if you're one character, you, you can't be in three lanes at once. Mm -hmm. So maybe like if you had three, three characters and you could switch between them or you could in league, you can teleport between lanes occasionally mm -hmm. if you have teleport. So maybe that would be an idea. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I thought about maybe the small grid would work better, but I, I do think, I, I do think execution is a huge part of MOBAs. So when you take that away, you've got a really, really big design problem ahead of mm -hmm. you. And some of the things like just paying attention to the mini map, um, they, they just kind of go away when you have as much time as you want. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I also think there's something aesthetic almost about the way that, uh, and this is a big reason I think that those games took off is, um, and I haven't heard people talk about this much, but like, you know, after you, when you go to the base and then you like are running back to your position, um, there's like this 30 second 
time window or so where you you aren't really doing anything like and and i think that that serves a ton of functions one it's like uh, maybe a pacing thing two it's like now you can interact with streamers and like talk to people and be social and three it's like you can sit there and like actually think about your strategy and that's one of the coolest things about those games that's really inspiring to me in terms of making real-time strategy games is the idea of using these long distances that you have to travel um basically it's a way to make movement slow like the way i think about it is like if you look at the mini map like that's that's the real game is the minimap and the actors just move very slowly over the minimap. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. But you can express that as, you know, zoomed in and the character's moving at full speed and it's just a big ass map. And um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's, that's a really cool, interesting thing about those games that really made them work at the time, at, you know, the time and place in history where streaming is this big thing and, you know, games are, are more social and more, you know, like uh, more almost more like MMO like in that they're in their socialness. And and also, like I said, like, you know, I my favorite thing about League of Legends is when I'm like walking up to the lane. And I'm thinking about like, huh, should we go do dragons? Should we blankety blank? Should we blank? You know, like, and, and a lot of real time games, you don't get those moments to like think, you know, and, and kind of like contemplate. And so, uh, that's something I think that's very, uh, exciting and cool about those games. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe one day someone will take up the mantle and make this kind of, uh, genre mashup. I think it needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, more broadly, I would just say I want people to do more, um, you know, don't I, I, I actually wouldn't call for I, I'm not I mean, maybe we need to do that as like a, a stepping stone. But for me, it's more like look at let's try to look at fundamentally why the, the how that MOBA design works, what's happening there. And then how can you apply those lessons to other um, to to new designs that are completely new. Um, for me, what's so exciting about them is that they're structural in a way that previous like real time strategy games weren't as much. So like I, I see the early video game history days, you know, Street Fighter, Starcraft, uh, a lot, you know, turn based tactical games, um, largely as like you put a bunch of actors into a big box and they fight each other. Maybe there's a little bit of building here and there, but basically a bunch of actors with hit points ram into each other and somebody wins. And, and you know, maybe there's some map geometry and stuff, but it's not, it's not structural in the way that like the, the minion waves is like this resource engine sort of thing. And the, the towers and the, and to a lesser extent, the objectives, but largely it's those, those waves of minions that are just like part of the rules. Um, and, uh, and from for me, you know, I'm very inspired by like uh, designer board games and thinking about those systemic rules and the structure. I hope that more developers start looking at, uh, you know, ways to implement that kind of like structural rule set stuff in maybe a more holistic way. Um, that's like my dream anyway, that we can start doing that. But I think that, yeah, you're right. I think part of that will be, t you know, iterating, taking existing designs, remixing them together and, and trying stuff out. I think that's part of the development process. Cool. Well, we're pretty much like out ish of time. I mean, maybe we can talk about Skinner boxes real quick. Uh, they're bad. Uh, what's your, what's your comment? Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, but I think I, we kind of had some disagreement at one point because, you were saying something a couple of years back. I think you had a podcast and you were, your argument was roguelikes are basically Skinner bots. 
And as someone who develops roguelikes and plays a lot of them, it's it's hard not to take that like a little bit personally. Sure. And think like, am I am I just like in a Skinner box? But the other thing is, I look at some of this addictiveness things and and the the concerns that people have about games and how addictive they are, and I think about should I worry about that? Should I try to make my games like less addictive? And and the other thing is personally from a player perspective, I actually. I know this is really weird, but like I, I kind of count on a game getting me addicted because mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. If it's just like uh, as I get older, I, I you know games seem less and less interesting. I still want to play them, but like it gets to a point where I look at my Steam catalog or whatever, and I'm just kind of like, eh, man, I'm not sure. Like I don't really, nothing's really like you know getting me excited. But I, I, I like that when I really get into a game and yeah. it really hooks me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's for certain people that whatever their personality is or, you know, they have a problem with that, that could be really bad. Well, let me let me respond to that real quick. Uh, so I think that there's a bunch of ways that a game can like really like maybe hook you to use another term like or, or engage you and make you feel like you really want to play it. And addiction is one of those. And I think right now, like, you know, I have I have very negative feelings about just games in general. Like, I, I just I don't think we really know as a species yet how to make really very great games uh, that are very engaging. But I do think we know how to make really good, like, you know, addiction uh, machines. And so basically the choice that we have right now is something that's very addictive and will engage us on the addiction level like you know diablo or something or something that um that that isn't addictive and then it has to rely on other qualities which i think are not that strong in our games these days and so that's that would be my explanation for that that you're kind of like looking to be addicted because i sort of i feel that way too i'm playing fire emblem three houses right now and i'm definitely like addicted i'm definitely like it's not hard it's not engaging or like you know tactical i don't feel like i'm building skill at all i'm just kind of like riding the addiction wave of like i hope i get a random item that's good or like a new skill pops up or you know like whatever um and that's a kind of engagement that uh i'm just happy to be engaged at all by video games because if it weren't for that i would i would just not play um uh so that would be my my take on that Right, you just might you might go read a novel or something instead. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, TV uh, is on fire right now. I, I think a few. Whenever it was when this came out, I was I was thinking about like, oh, I need to defend. Well, not like they need defending, but uh, traditional roguelikes because I don't know if they're like more addictive. But the argument was made that I guess people are always looking at that random drop. They're always expecting. The, the next run, I'm going to get something that's going to help me out and mm-hmm. really going to make me overpower. And being like not a, not a great, like, uh, for instance, Dungeon Crawl Stone Suit player, but I have a, I have beaten it a couple times. It's pretty hard. Um, it's like the, the thing with those games that I would want to point out is uh, it, you might get a great item, but that's only in a cover like 1% of your survival needs. You've also got, you've got to like cover like ten different resistances. You've got to sure. have resistance of like mutation and electricity and fire, and you've got to have strength and dexterity, and you've got to have all like you've got to have all your bases covered. Mm-hmm. And the thing I noticed with those kinds of games is that you even if you got something really that looked amazing, it wasn't really a surefire guarantee that you're going to do better. It was just kind of like this one little problem is solved. Yeah, but it still you know may be it still may be functioning as the psychological. A hook 
is those those item drops to give you that little dopamine like rat pellet sort of feeling. Uh, even if you're right that like they're not the the complete strategic answer to to succeeding, they it's it's not about that. They're just they're just these little like you know sugar droplets that are triggering triggering your brain and kind of like even even subconsciously you're just like oh look at this that's nice you know what i mean like on some level um because it is helpful you know it is it is good it's not the whole strategy but it's it's definitely good if you get a good item and uh and so and you don't know like you know the, behind that next uh fog of war there might be another good item and do you know do you see what i'm saying i i definitely agree with that like that could be a part of it and um that could be driving people to play, I suppose. I, I think it's more of a problem in, in roguelikes, modern roguelikes, because there's a meta progression. Mm -hmm. So you're when you, you when you die in a in a traditional rogue, you might have lost five to ten hours, mm -hmm. and that doesn't feel good. You do not want to keep playing at that point, maybe out of spite. But when mm -hmm. you die in like a you know, modern roguelike, it's like oh, you get this little currency, and now you can spend the currency on your next run, and maybe in your next run you're going to get something great. And right. the runs are only 30 minutes. So I think it's, they're just two different worlds. Um, not like, not like this genre needs defending or anything. It's just, um, that, that's one thing I saw also to, to tie this back to, um, the points we were talking about earlier is what I said was looking at some of these postmortems, it looks like the path forward for at least indie developers who are not making, there, there's no way a lot of us can make really big polished content, heavy games. So, making a game in the roguelike genre is really an obvious choice. You can rely on procedural generation to stretch things and all that. And you can rely on all these like wacky situations happening because of the combination, the emergent properties of the game. Um, but I, I do kind of wonder and worry if, if all those kind of game designs are favoring things that are more addictive. Like are people really playing games for 2000 hours because they're like really enjoying it? I mean, I'm sure you've seen steam reviews where, people have like 2,500 hours on a game and they say, this sucks. Yeah. And, we're, and as a game developer, you're like really angry. Why, why would they leave that? Nobody, yeah. do, nobody, nobody spends 2000 hours on something and doesn't enjoy it. But is someone enjoying being in the casino? You know, is someone right. enjoying like being on drugs? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know the answer to all these questions, probably people smarter than me, but it does seem like the, the, the kind of games that are getting cut out of the market are, these story-driven games or puzzle games, and those are the things that you might just enjoy because they're just they're just intriguing, right? And mm -hmm. they just feel good to play. But then everything else is like free-to-play, meta progression, unlocks, right. and and it just the whole goal. And and I can't promise I'm not going to pursue this because it may be the only way to go forward. Is is just designing games that people want to play for hundreds, thousands of hours, mm -hmm. and then we kind of have to ask, like, is is that really like a really good idea? Yeah, well, one thing I will say in defense of roguelikes and other games that use those kind of, um, you know, uh, techniques is that, um, first of all, it would also apply to things like Tetris, you know, I mean, it, things that we think of as like these sort of classic, you know, f uh, foundational games. I think that, you know, Tetris on some level, you're you're hoping that you just get this you know, crazy good setup and then just like get these, you know, like to a really high level where your points are one Tetris is worth like tons of points. And then just at that moment, you get like two line pieces at the right time and it just all kind of comes together. Um, so I think that that's, you know, and, and even strategy games, like even like, um, 
you know, I think like a League of Le well, League of Legends is a bad example, but like take a less random strategy game. I'm even playing like chess online or something. Um, there's always this hope of like, so a matchmaking system technically kind of has this in it because, you know, a matchmaking system tries to match you up with someone as equal to you as possible. But on some level, you're kind of hoping like, you know, hey, I'm going to click matchmake and maybe I'm going to like stomp this next person, you know, like maybe I'm going to like, uh, so there's, it's, it's hard to completely get away from that sort of, uh, you know, pull the lever kind of, uh, brain, uh, trick. I mean, that's all almost always going to be there. I guess you could even argue in like a story game, it's, it's somewhat there. Um, but, uh, but I guess it's just a matter of, for me, like my, my, the thing I would like to say is like, um, just be conscious of it and, and think about it. And yeah, if you want to make the conscious decision to make something that is, really addictive you know consciously for because like and then you can make a living you know like i i can i can understand that um or if you you know want to make something that's sort of in between like i can understand that too but my point is just to to try to be conscious and aware of uh what the cost might be for people and you know what what we're putting out into the world i guess um less than saying like you know condemning anything that is like that um I just think it's a it's a good thing to explore. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. And I have to say, like, you seem to be one of the only people really talking about some of these things, that addictiveness and even things like violence, like in games that nobody's really questioning. So, you know, that's appreciated. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I appreciate that you appreciate it. <laughs> um, cool. Well, this has been really awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, can we plug some of your stuff? Uh, give me some plugs. What can people do to check out your games, your blogs, anything else you have, uh, your Patreon? Sure. Yeah. I've, I've got a Patreon. It's like patreon.com slash Volgat, V-U-L-G-A-T. But mainly I just, I, I'd love for people to go play um, my game, Golden Crone Hotel. I, I do think it's like if I could say it so, it's like a hidden gem, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, if you like traditional roguelikes, I think it's a lot of fun. Sweet. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show, Jeremiah Reed. And uh, I think this went really well, and I'd love to have you again sometime. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks.